I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, the monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind Three Brothers Film discuss movies as well as broader topics in film culture. We want to thank you for listening. As we approach the one-year anniversary of this podcast in December, we're glad you've chosen to join us. And if you like what you've heard, please drop us a five-star rating or review. And even more importantly, please recommend us to your family and friends. We're looking to expand our audience, and reviews and in-person recommendations are the best way to help new listeners find our podcast. I'm Anders Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anta. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brothers. And this month, we're talking about The French Dispatch the newest film from Wes Anderson, who returns to live-action filmmaking with this series of vignettes framed around an American magazine in France. But we'll also discuss what we've been watching on television, in particular Netflix's recent phenomenon, Squid Game. From the fictional French town of Ennui to a mysterious island off the coast of Korea, join us on a global jaunt. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. Decent people. Supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremitz, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. Wes Anderson has been a favorite of mine, and really, all three brothers, ever since his breakthrough sophomore effort in Rushmore. Rushmore was one of the highest-ranked comedies on this past spring's Three Brothers Top 100, coming in at number 36. And even his less heralded films have a special place in our private pantheon, as anyone who listens closely to the opening of this podcast has probably guessed. Anderson's mix of theatrically precise mise-en-scene and dry humor, while sometimes accused of being twee and whimsical, is often layered with a sense of poignancy and sadness. His films are literary in their illusions, whether literally as in his adaptation of Roald Dahl's Fantastic Mr. Fox, or at least in broad strokes, as in a film like The Royal Tannenbaums, with its J.D. Salinger notes. Anderson's films are careful and full of eccentrics, but they're not tidy or devoid of real emotion and danger. The French Dispatch of the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun, as the full title reads on screen, is an anthology film, set in the fictional French town of Ennui, an appropriately Wes Andersonian name for a city if there ever was one, and framed around the preparations for a special issue of the magazine commemorating the death of the publication's founder and editor, Arthur Howitzer Jr., played by Anderson regular Bill Murray. After this special issue, the dispatch will cease to publish. Nearly all of Anderson's regular collaborators are featured in the film, from Owen Wilson and Jason Schwartzman to the aforementioned Bill Murray. But the anthology structure of the French dispatch means that there are plenty of characters for new collaborators and returning cast members. This film has a cast that reads like a who's who of Hollywood art house favorites, from Benicio Del Toro and Jeffrey Wright to young performers like Timothée Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan. The three main storylines each follows one of the journalists for the dispatch and dramatizes their feature stories. First, we get the concrete masterpiece, featuring a prisoner who has created a particularly unique series of paintings and the challenges facing an art dealer who wishes to acquire them. Revisions to a Manifesto tells the story of student revolutionaries 
drawing on the 1968 student protests in France and the French New Wave. The last feature is the private dining room of the police commissioner, in which a writer attending a dinner prepared by the police commissaire is interrupted by the kidnapping of the commissaire's son. Each of these vignettes is riddled with allusions to real-life figures and events, such as Lord Devine and the elegant marbles, to James Baldwin's time in Paris. And each features artistic allusions prominently, painting, cinema, and the culinary arts, respectively. As always, there is a mix in Anderson's stories between the absurd and the tragic beauty of individual lives. But the question is whether the French Dispatch is ultimately more than a series of an amusing vignettes. At his best, Anderson is able to use his unique style to explore the fullness of the human condition, from love and friendship and family to the threat of fascism. The French Dispatch certainly tackles a wide range of subjects, but leaves one wanting more or less depending on the individual tale. Perhaps this is the danger of the anthology film, something I myself felt even when favorites like the Coen brothers have attempted the format in the recent Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So, what did each of you think? Where does the French Dispatch stand in the fairly consistent and varied oeuvre of Wes Anderson? Is it a triumph? Or is this the film in which he finally becomes the very thing his detractors have always accused him of? Purveyor of quirky style, lacking all substance. Anton, you saw the film with me, and you mentioned that you just recently caught up with Anderson's last film, the stop-motion animated Isle of Dogs. Mm -hmm. So... Is the French Dispatch worth writing home about? Well, I think at this stage, like many Wes Anderson films, I wouldn't write widely to everyone I know, but for those who are admirers of Wes Anderson, I'd recommend it. Basically, like every of it, one of his films, like I have a, a, at least a modest um, admiration for basically all of his films, but for me personally, this film falls into sort of his, probably his bottom films uh, along with Life Aquatic where I still like it I still had fun but I think I maybe need to spend more time sifting through it to get more appreciation out of it um, I liked it but I, the, the total effect didn't really have a strong impact on me. What about you Aaron? Yeah I'm I'm similar in that um, for a long time I've kind of con I guess I would have considered myself a bit of a Wes Anderson homer automatically liking the movies and thinking they're some of the best of the year whenever they come out but at this point i don't know whether it's simply the the novelty of his his stylizations is not quite as novel anymore or it's just this film's busyness it reminded me of almost like a richard scary book of just like the amount of oh, stuff happening on it yeah <laughs> absolutely um and so the first time watching it it was it was so much to process that it actually took me a long time to get into it and the thing with um the thing with wes anderson is that he's always interesting to watch, even if I'm not particularly engaged. So it's like there's always some interesting visual joke. There's always some composition. There's always some kind of wordplay, whether it's a name or a phrase, that will... It's amusing, you know? At, at, at the very least, it's amusing, but it's it's starting to remind me of some, like... It's not like a, a perfectly... A, not a perfect analogy or, like, similarity with the director, but it's, it's almost reminded me of Woody Allen at this point, where... I enjoy the general shtick, so I can like them. I'll always like kind of yeah. like the movie, but I'm just like, okay, it's just like another Wes Anderson little lark. Mm -hmm. Do you think that I'm worried that the density of the jokes, the wit, is almost um, making it harder to enjoy? Yeah, like it's the kind of movie where like maybe like I feel like there's there's so much packed in 
but overall like I'm not as engaged by the characters and the story as some of my favorites particularly like uh, you know like Rushmore Royal Tenenbaums for me are masterpieces like I, I love those films and there's no point in this movie that like moves me or connects with me or even makes me like laugh to the same extent so I'm, I'm just going to say something briefly, and I think, Anders, you'll probably want to jump in here because you made a comment in your, in your keynote about it, and it's the idea of anthology. So I think what you said, Anton, of it keeps you at a distance a bit, and that's a structural decision. Mm-hmm. And I, my kind of very basic thoughts on that is that because the movie is individual stories with a skeletal framework that links them, but there's no characters, and there's overarching themes about, like, journalism and things like that that link it all together and kind of the idea of ethics specifically and and appreciation of art of course which is a constant in all of anderson's films but like there's no structural payoffs in terms of like emotional narrative storytelling so you don't get like a catharsis in the first two stories you get it in the third story because that's what happens within the two hour timeline of the whole movie but the other ones are denied that so it's a bit of that like you're just looking for a little bit more there right so I think that, as I said, each of the, you know, I think one could take each of the vignettes on their own, which I'm often tempted to do with an anthology film. And you'd say, which is your favorite? And my, my impulse is to say the, the final one, the Jeffrey Wright story, because, as you say, yeah, I would it, agree. Gets the, it has a, an emotional catharsis. It has some really interesting uh, illusions and, and uh, events and, and nice little character bits. I did actually really quite like the the first one, the uh, the concrete masterpiece. I found it the most absurd, and the in that sense maybe the funniest because I think it pushed Anderson in a way that actually it reminded me more of the uh, Grand Budapest Hotel in certain moments because Grand Budapest Hotel on the surface a lot of people accuse it of being very like like one of the most sort of you know it has that nested story. Telling. It's like a Russian doll. Yeah, and it has, and it's uh, you know very carefully curated, but much like Gustav, the uh, Ray Fiennes character in the film, it is very much putting on a show for you. But that film ultimately reaches a real catharsis, and the stakes are higher than any other Anderson film in the the you know the end of the golden era and the rise of fascism in Europe. This film, the the first story has some of the sort of more daring elements in terms of, you know, what it does with art. It's it's really mocking certain things. I didn't realize until after watching or reading up on the film after watching it that the Adrian Brody's character is based on uh, a real life art collector, Lord Devine. And I don't know, I've, mm-hmm. I've never been to London, but Anson, you've been. You've seen yeah. the Elgin, Elgin Marbles? I think so. Right at the British Museum that are lined up on in a dark room on a concrete wall similar to the concrete masterpiece in the prison in this film right and bro his character is based on Devine and this the difficulty of staging certain pieces of art but there's kind of an interesting reversal of the real life thing in which people have argued that the elegant marbles should be returned to the to Greece where they can yeah. be on display in their natural they would naturally be under light in, uh, you know, in the temple right, and things like that, whereas the way they're displayed in the museum is this long, dark alcove with lights shining on them and things like this. We have the opposite problem here where Anderson's reversed it so that 
the art can never be seen outside of the the dark prison. Yeah. Right. So there's some interesting stuff that he's doing here, and I you know I really like Benicio del Toro actually in a Wes Anderson movie because he brings a little danger and a little edge to the proceedings. I think maybe the weakest of the three for me is the the middle chapter, because it's also the most self consciously sort of cinephile, you know, '60s French student revolution yeah, or protests and. You know, there's a little Godard and stuff like yeah, that. And to me, that wife. one kind of falls flat. And I don't know. And, and Francis McDormand doesn't seem like a great fit for that character to me. I don't know. So it's a very uneven film, even if overall I'm inclined to kind of like it. But I think my point, which is like the same thing with Buster Scruggs, it doesn't like a really good anthology comes together to be more than the sum of its parts in a sense. Right. And this never does. But I don't think the problem is because is inherent to the anthology genre. And I actually like Buster Scruggs better than you did. But like for me, is that the, the overall um, frame narrative isn't that interesting to me. No, it's not, yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, like I don't feel that strongly about the characters or like the whole idea of these journalists in France. And it never sells the overarching meaning or value of that frame narrative yeah. in order to like um, ground the rest of the the stories we get right like you want you usually want a frame device that somehow provides like an extra layer of meaning and I, like maybe there's more there and as you mentioned like things with like the elegant marvel marbles like there's so much going on like when i was watching isle of dogs again like there's the density within like um you know take 60 seconds on screen whether it's mm-hmm. the visual stuff that's going on the allusions to other works the referential the layered jokes that are both like they're right the this all the dry jokes but also the jokes that are just like puns all the characters have a, a their name's a joke like there's something that's both like intriguing and appealing about that but also off-putting and for me those elements um that are a little bit more distancing off-putting are uh, more pronounced in this film than his other ones partly because we don't get the frame narrative or character arcs that bring in and work a strong counter to the distancing. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think you hit on a couple of things that I think I would want to draw out and I think kind of tell me something about what doesn't quite work in this film. I mean, you talk about density and illusions and, and puns and things like that. It almost becomes a bit of a game for those in the know, right? Well, it, it functions similarly perhaps to like Easter eggs or references in... Uh, you know, comic book or yeah. sci-fi movies and things like that, but for a different audience. And and then this is the other thing. In the same way that like a lot of like films that are based on like pre-existing properties rely on the pre-existing emotional attachments that viewers bring with them uh, to the characters, right? Whether it's Star Wars or Marvel or yes. whatever, what have you. This relies on your affection for a particular kind of writing, particularly the New Yorker. Yeah, and your taste for the new yorker mine which is not very high right now let's just say uh yeah you know your your mileage may vary depending on how much that gives you fuel to uh to enjoy this so for me and like i i am interested in this idea of like americans who are urbane and worldly and cosmopolitan in france i think there's an interesting idea there but but the joke is that it's also liberty kansas that has yes, the, that's the joke, right? Yeah, exactly. And the people of Liberty, Kansas, like, do they care about and this a, like, there is, like, Liberty, Kansas, I think the real place is, like, a few hundred people. Like, it's, Right, so how could this be justified? It's purely a vanity project, Well, it's partly right? selling into the idea that back in the day, 
you know, a newspaper could have a foreign dispatch, right? Like a so the, that's it's partly also the joke. vanity project of how it's. But there, I, there's right? two things. So that when he dies, is done because it was only ever to serve his his vanity yeah. and his uh, and and that's the part that needed to be drawn out more, right? Like to, if you made Howitzer more of a royal Tenenbaum figure, if you expanded some of the frame narrative a bit more, I don't know if that would have okay. worked or not. It's it's hard so to like, say. Two things that I just want to touch upon, and we can probably elaborate later, um, but I think it's important. Um, one, in terms of density, I think. One of the issues here is that Anderson, um, you know, I think he has a strong command of cinema and cinematic conventions, but everyone has noticed, right, and always comments on his literary aspects. And density, certain kinds of density and in-jokes and that layering works better in literature where you can literally pause on the page and pour back over it in a way that you can't in a movie, which especially if you're watching this in a movie theater, you can't hit pause and go back over something. So you have to rewatch in order to get the better sense of it. So there's a tension between his literary interests and the depth and density they allow versus cinema. And then the other thing I just wanted to point out, which I do think is both, it's both a strength and a weakness of Anderson, his reliance upon reference and ex- um, external things to, to create the real emotional resonance of his works. And this is people. This is something people have criticized him for a long time, that the emotion in his films comes from the song cue. And to some extent, I don't think that that's a problem, because what I would say is, like, he is amazing at selecting the right song for the right moment for the right scene. And so credit is deserved to some extent. But at the same time, there's something going on there where he's, he's not creating the emotional arc through the characters he's creating or the narrative, but it's a reference to a song or it's your feelings about the New Yorker or journalists that creates yep. the emotion. And I would go back to say that that's why it, in my mind, he's never surpassed Rushmore because in Rushmore, he found his style and yet it was a personal story yeah. about a prep school kid from Texas filmed on the grounds of his old prep school. And there was a real emotional hook there with Max Fisher. Yeah. And, Who's, who and is the said, ultimate? Then, then, who is the ultimate character Andersonian in character, all of his yeah. films? Some people I know. Some people have argued that I need to go back and watch Life Aquatic because it's literally been 15 years since I've watched that film. And I know coming after Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, like you, Anton, I kind of slotted into the lot bottom. But I am. I'm wondering if Steve Zissou might also be the the grown up version of Max Fisher that is the other end of things i don't so, know so but that's a maybe that's a different conversation my 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 kind of general approach to it is that he's a director who's has all these literary constructs but also visually as a very kind of gallerist or diorama approach yep. to things mm-hmm. and people will be like oh it's this movie's wonderful it's like walking around in a gallery i'm like no it's a movie in a gallery you're not on a conveyor belt that forces you the way you watch things you can yep. you're free to go which way you want but in in a movie you just it's one track <laughs> and it so it doesn't it doesn't actually take advantage of the density in the early going i find mm-hmm. it's interesting because as the stories go they become more appealing on an emotional sense but that might have largely to do that they pare down the amount of characters and the busyness happening like the reason that the the, the mm. jeffrey wright one hits more is that it allows us to understand him and yes. then the co- it has mm-hmm. the core that relationship between the father and the son but so like the what are the most affecting moments in that the most affecting moments is the brief aside where he talks about him being in the prison, same prison cell because he was picked up for, for hooking up with other men in France yeah. at that time. And it's never like really said outright, but that's what it is. 
And then the moment where he shares with the chef Nescafe about like them both being foreigners in this land and how they have to try a little bit harder to get noticed and make, and it's like, are we going to, that great line of like, we leave to try and, you know, find the thing that we were missing at home. Are we going to find it? Which is a very uh, James Baldwin theme. It is. It's a great homage there, but it works with it. Like, you don't have to know anything but Baldwin. No, you don't. Jeffrey Wright's very good. He's got an amazing voice for narration. So it's, it's a pleasure to listen to him. But it's also that we're not overwhelmed with side jokes. Like, you know, Saoirse Ronan shows up there. Edward Norton shows up there. Lots of other people show up in that one. But he doesn't, like, get distracted with them they get their like one moment and that's that and it's always like this through line so you can actually build kind of a narrative an emotional attachment to him and it's also that he's a character it it's it's the unspoken things that is often the most effective in in wes anderson films where the character is trying to impose the structure on the world around them emotionally yep. because the limitations and it's the one it breaks through that there's some kind of poignancy as a viewer so like max fisher has his plays and he has to organize the world into his plays and his clubs and his little box stories. But that's not how the emotions work. That's not how his fixation on the teacher works. That's not how his relationship with Herman Bloom works. And so the maturity, the growing up at the end of the film is understanding that things are not controllable, that people are not pawns to move around. And a movie like Grand Budapest Hotel, which frankly on my first viewing of it, seems somewhat similar to this one where I was a little bit hesitant. I was like, this is a very fussy movie with a lot of... Um, nesting doll style uh, narrative machinations and a very off-putting emotional approach like it doesn't it doesn't let you in and it seems to be overly preoccupied with the style but then you realize that that's about M. Gustav trying to keep this order against the world that is moving in on him and it's going to break it over it's Anton your whole thing of like the civilized and the barbaric your essay you did back when that came out on the website and this idea of it's the encroaching history that is swirling around it. And even, you don't need the external um, signifiers of, about history or anything because it, it exists in the movie itself too with the ending where he's killed off screen. But this movie doesn't mm-hmm. actually, it doesn't really have that because it's, it's no. both Wes Anderson indulging himself in his style to an extent that is greater than all of his other movies. But it's also, there's no character, the only character who could conceivably be the one who's trying to force an, a... Um, a order on the world is the publisher, the, the Bill Murray character, but we don't really get him. But so, so right. this is interesting. So one of the other, um, what I thought was an interesting emotional scene was when actually um, the editor is talking to the Jeffrey Wright writer. Oh, that's and yeah. tells him that like, oh, like this is actually the best part of the story. You have to put it back in. And what I find interesting is that something you just mentioned, Aaron, is that often in a Wes Anderson film, and a great example is Grand Budapest some of the most important moments, especially even, like, emotionally, you might not even notice the first time around. And then, like, when you go back, you're like, oh, wait a second. That, like, moment on, like, the train or whatever is, like, actually super significant. And I just thought it was just, like, a passing scene. Like, Darjeeling Limited is a film like that yeah. as well. And, like, but, so what's interesting is that sometimes you wonder, like, is that a... Is that a uh, is that related to the director's control and he's playing it super subtle? Or is it that there's something going on sometimes beyond, right, like this this sort of, you know, Wes Anderson's an extremely controlling director. Is there actually things that go on in his films beyond his control that gain more significance? What I find interesting in connection back to the editor thing is that here you have the editor speaking to the, the writer or creator telling him, you know what, you might actually, you might not really realize what's your most significant thing. And he totally mm-hmm. like doesn't get it. And sometimes in a movie mm-hmm. like this, you actually wonder, it's like, this to me is 
the embodiment of that for Wes Anderson, where it's like, here you have a film and probably like some of its best moments might not the parts where Wes Anderson's exerting his most control on it. But even further than that, like, and I think this is a weakness in auteurist criticism in general. It's the mm-hmm. idea that things are only meaningful if they're intentional. And it's like, I don't give yeah. a crap whether direct, like, people can create their myth of the auteur. They can have their Stanley Kubrick idea that he controls everything. But that's frame. the entire doesn't. fundamental flaw of Room 237. Yeah. Right? Like, that documentary is, like, premised on the idea that nothing could be in that film that was not intended by Kubrick. Well, again, that's not necessarily the film's thesis. That's the people's. No, that's the people's but, thesis. Yeah. But so Wes Anderson, he's a little bit, he obviously is more controlling than the average director because his frames are so meticulous, because his mise-en-scene is so insanely exact and so specific to him, right? Like, nobody else... And the delivery, people, the way he has actors... De- de- whenever you enter, all the actors who enter his films have that, like, Wes Anderson delivery, yeah. right? But people tried, you know, pe- other directors have tried and failed to copy his style. They yes, can't do it. case in point, uh, the brother Ryan Johnson. Bloom. Yeah. yeah. And Ryan Johnson would probably admit it, because I know he loves Darjeeling Limited. It's, like, one of his favorite movies, because he also has two brothers, so it, like, rings true, just like Wes Anderson has two brothers. But the thing I find with sometimes approaching a movie like the uh, French Dispatch is we we fall into this rabbit hole of wanting to reflect back on Wes Anderson's all like all of his films right and we just want to read it mm-hmm. within it's like okay the style it's it's almost like the Bond episode, right the Bond series like we yep. did last time where we only want to read it as a Bond movie so we only want to read this as a Wes Anderson movie and so of course Wes Anderson heads are like well this is great because it's doing this stuff with these characters and it's reconfiguring this and that and my biggest issue is that only in smaller moments does it seem to be gesturing at a, at a humanity beyond the pages of a bourgeois news, uh, newspaper magazine. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it seems to have a frivolity that Grand Budapest doesn't have, that all of his movies involving children doesn't have, because there's an, immediate, there's an immediacy to that kind of juvenile coming-of-age story that hits everybody. Yeah. You don't have to have a prerequisite yeah. to, like, approach it. Like, you know, Rushmore. Like Moonrise, yeah. Moonrise Kingdom, his animated films. They because have, coming of age is such a universal experience. Exactly. It has a poignancy that Even doesn't rely not. on a familiarity with style or approach to subject matter or a literary knowledge. You don't have to have read a bunch of snooty stuff from the mid-century to appreciate it. I'm not, and I, I, I'm, I'm coming across as a little like denigrating here, but it is, this movie does seem frivolous. I, I'm very open to be, I could watch it again in a year and discover something completely new. And think it's actually much deeper than it is. But I'm struggling at the moment to see where the meaning comes in. Aside from, frankly, some critics and jur- people who fancy themselves great journalists reading too much into the relationship of journalists and the commentary and the idea of like, well, this movie's a great. It's an ode to an editor who supports and fights for his writers and allows them. And I'm like, but they're not really journalists and they're not doing real work. Yeah, that doesn't. That only makes sense to a uh, like a journalist critic. That like th- that yeah. has no meaning for like a regular. Well, it's like they're viewer. not war reporters. Plus, I'm not even convinced that that's <laughs> happening in the movie. So, like, no. so maybe this is an opportunity for us to to talk about the film and its relationship to criticism and journalism, and maybe even also to the idea of the 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 fish out of water, the American abroad trope, which is in this film. Because I think that potentially the thing I like about the film. I don't, again, we can set aside intention and, and auteurism for a moment. And I would actually argue that the film, when taken on its own terms, actually kind of shows some of that for, the, for foolishness, for the, uh, for the idea that it can even, that you, that you can be 
I think you know, like in that in say the say again, like I don't. So in the Jeffrey, so in the Jeffrey Wright story, we've we've already talked about how like there's this notion of these two two men, you know, uh, outsiders to to French society who okay. have to you know work a little bit extra hard. The chef and um, the, the chef, the, the, yeah. yeah. But then there's also but there's something of like though this there's an outside of people who you know are people of color or uh, you know marked as different in in that kind of way in our culture there is a sort of sense among some of the people's readings of this film that Americans kind of have almost this like entitlement to kind of go and report on the world I don't know like and I think that the film kind of shows it for folly even if it doesn't intentionally realize that like to me in the end some of what all both of you have been saying it's like there's something about the film and the, the idea that it's doing something really, really important. But then ultimately, what the important thing comes in the relationships that they build. The important thing is not actually in the journalism no. and, and what they're actually reporting on. You know, the importance is in the experience of seeing the paintings that you can't see anywhere else, not in this bringing the reports back to, to people in other world or the ridiculous sort of like conference that Tilda Swinton's character, <laughs> you know, gives. Mm-hmm. Like, which, which is very funny to me because if you've ever been to like, you know, academic conferences or art shows and things like that it's uh it's very true but it's there's it's like if anyone takes that straight as something to be like praised i'm like wow you uh, to me that's like an indictment of like the the shallowness of that whole culture but i I don't think that's like an accidental thing here and again i don't want to talk about like intentionality or stuff Yeah, yeah but i do like clearly the concrete masterpiece is denigrating how stupid so much of modern art is and it's kind of showing of like look at this man they've reduced this man's horrifyingly sad life to a bunch of stupid paintings that they want to like fight over and like literally rip out of his so take away from him right and the second one um the revisions to a manifesto where it's literally about a writer who can't she you know francis mcdormand's character she is so um, cynical about the idea of youth and and revolu- their kind of revolutionary spirit that she actually has to take their manifesto and correct it. Yeah. And the exactly. movie kind of has this almost dismissive of like, well, it's just ultimately these kind of pretensions of, of political change are just children wanting to hook up and play chess matches with each mm-hmm. other, with the authorities. And then the third one is like, you know, he's supposed to write a food review. He ends up accidentally walking his way sideways into something meaningful, and that is pointed out with the with the editor saying like, "This is the best part. You got to put this back in." But he also makes the same point of then he's like, "You never explain the food. You never describe it. This has nothing to do with the assignment here." And it's almost like by avoiding the assignment, the meaning is actually created in that scenario, right? Like the mm-hmm. actual. Um, the, so, the, sorry, just but the thing yeah. with the French Dispatch, the magazine within the world of the movie, as presented is worthless within a larger meaning and the meaning is only created accidentally by an honest engagement of the people that they're ostensibly reporting on now you're making me think that this movie's actually like way more uh i guess way more satirical it is than maybe, i think so. than maybe i, I think thought the movies i i did think the but i think quite no, I, I thought it was a, but, but he has a mean streak <laughs> in his movies i genuinely think yeah but that. you also and that's kind of what i tried to gesture so is the whole but like is the whole view you know is that wes that, anderson is not nice and like twee and like his all his films like to me like the moment in Darjeeling Unlimited that like guts you is like the whole both shows the cluelessness and the objectification of these guys going into India but also like the sadness is like mine died mine didn't make it you know like 
when they're saving the kids. Like he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. The rocks killed. You're bleeding like crazy. Peter, you okay? I didn't save mine. It's horrible. It's like you know, like, reality forces like, its way upon into their stupid exactly. world. Yeah, there's a point. There's a point in Isle of Dogs where the the four dogs go like you think they go into an incinerator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like Lauren was like, "Did all those dogs just die?" And I was like, "Maybe." And like that's like a Wes Anderson yeah. movie. It's like it's very possible. Like just you could dryly just like kill four of the main dog characters in an incinerator, and it would just be like kind of part that, of the. That joke. was a film on a second viewing. I liked much more than the first time I watched it as well. To be honest, I, I liked it a lot, but it's partially because some of the distancing, um, the emotional distancing, some of the, you know, frankly, like it, it requires less time for you to sink into that warm bath when it's animation because it's you're upfront about the artificiality of it all. Yeah. Well, is there but is there how much difference is there between his stop motion and his Not mise en scène? Because he, he does that with human yes. beings. But, but can we talk? Okay, so this is a perfect example though here where I think it's like a huge miss cue in the film is when he goes to an animated sequence because just what you said i'm like this movie's already mm-hmm. essentially animated why can't oh. you just do the chase no because then the, well i thought the no chase because is a way it's, to it's, it's a i kind of like i kind of like the but the animation's I, meant I to look like it. that yeah like but it's New a budgetary thing cartoon. it's clearly like yeah. you didn't want to do the actual no no no, no it's it because a, they wanted to look they wanted to look like that new no Yorker it's not the new the, the animated are right? you talking about the car chase yeah that's a Euro cartoon, homage. Euro. That's, not, that's, like that's, not that's supposed to be like Tintin. Yeah, it's supposed to be like Tintin or something. But what I'm saying is that that scene, it's it's okay. like amusing, yeah. but you know how much, how much funnier it would be if it was like an actual guy on the front of a car? I I, I just think there's a perfect example of like, well, why are you making it animated? You're already no, doing an animated movie. Wes Anderson has specifically has a thing where anytime that there's... So uh, essentially like violence and action on screen is always like either downplayed or not even shown. It's the way that, like, characters in Isle of Dogs, like, the dogs fight, and it's just, like, you just see, like, a cotton ball, and people are fighting. You always see times where all of a sudden it's, like, it cuts, and someone's got punched in the face, but you don't see the punch. They just have, like, the blow. Yeah. He has a way, there's something about, um, and he purposely, it's, like, remember, you're forgetting about the hilarious um, ski chase up in the mountains. See, I don't find that that funny. But, like... That's the thing. I'm saying that these moments, I, I know what you're saying. It's just, like, that is a case where it's, he's doing a joke. It's a setup, yeah. it's a build, it it's a punchline. The punchline fails for me. But in both those films? I, in, in both those in, films. You know what? I'm starting to no, come around no. to the, the idea. I've watched it many times with my kids, the the only Wes Anderson movie they've watched, but Fantastic Mr. Fox. In many ways, drawing on Dahl's material, who is another person who, who walks that line between uh, sort of whimsy and like dark, uh, you know, realities of life. Um, it's such a perfect fit, and that film. I don't know if there's actually a miscue in that film, to be honest. That might that that's one of his most like. Even if it's not my favorite, like it's hard for me to fault that's it for, my for anything. In, in I think it's, it's one of his my best. Definitely. I'll have to rewatch it. No, I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is top top four for me. For but sure. again, I don't really. It's this idea of like ranking. Everybody has their own. Yeah, I you know, know. I know. It's all very, but very like personally felt because it's it's one of those weird things with Wes Anderson. He's, you know, he's not a. He's not really emotionally accessible as a filmmaker, and yet mm-hmm. he he does um, inspire really strong feeling in people who yeah. see his yeah. movies. Like so, I know I know one listener, potential listener of this episode, who would be like outraged that we wouldn't have like Life Aquatic as our number. Oh, but I I, so like I'm <laughs> I'm teaching a course on originality. Like I've taught this section several times now, 
every year, like at the start of the, the term, I ask students, they have to list someone they consider to be original. And invariably, one student will pick Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Like he does, he does like stand out for people, people um, like, like I, like I tried to sort of suggest at the beginning is that like th- a, a film like this, like, would you write home about it? You're like, it, it, that almost isn't like Wes, my, my affinity for Wes Anderson is like, I like him a lot. I totally understand why a huge segment of the population does not like Wes Anderson. But I also know that the people who do like it uh, will appreciate sort of like, okay, how good is it? And then what, le- you know, like, where would you mm-hmm. rank it? How do, would you compare it? Like, so the, the aficionados of Wes Anderson um, are quite passionate. And, and people who like Wes Anderson and are passionate about him, it's not a, it's not a put on. No. It's not. No. It's genuine. There's a real emotional connection with his films that, that people have. Yeah. Even if it's not, for I think it's also because he's a he's a he's similar to Kubrick, not just in the specificity and the kind of presenting an auteurist vision where it clicks in somebody's brain of being like, oh, that's what you mean by director as author. But it's also he's a he's a bit of a gateway filmmaker, right? Like you get into Wes mm-hmm. Anderson, he's going to lead you to other worlds within yeah, movies. Yeah, and, through the references. I literally read a student essay on Wes Anderson today. That was great. <laughs> awesome. And it was a class where they had full choice of what they wanted to write on from like pop culture and a student wrote on Life Aquatic but and I was like, what? That's also a, but that's also, it was very that's good, also a great example of what Aaron just said with like the gateway where like they're the yeah. stepping stone where you start like people are yeah. like starting to get into film they, they, they start watching every Kubrick they can get their hands on, they start watching Wes Anderson and then they're like, oh, like what's he referencing here? I gotta check out these films. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, I don't know, like, what do you make of, like, Wes Anderson has always had, I feel like sometimes it's not as prominent, but, like, his interest in sort of new wave, and I'm curious what your guys' view of sort of, like, his, how how does um, the French Dispatch engage with the new wave? How does it treat that whole, like, the whole, uh, you know, uh, French Revolution sort of segment, yeah. the, like, the 60s, like, you know, again, like, it's hard, I'm trying to work out, is this purely just derision of this? Um, so... What, okay, I would say that it, it is most easily summarized in the moment where um, the girlfriend character, I, for, what's, I forget the actress name, it's um, Linda Caudry, the, the Algerian, French-Algerian actress, the, the girlfriend of Timothy Chalamet's yep. guy, yep. where yep. she's like, we can't have the pop poster down, and she takes that down and puts it, we have to put up the revolutionary guy, and Timothy Chalamet's like, can't we have both? <laughs> and that really that really says it because that's, that is like, Jean-Luc Godard in a... Exactly, the children of Marx and Coca-Cola. Exactly, like literally, but that's also specifically, you know, Timothy Chalamet is very much Jean-Pierre Leo in Masculine Feminine. The young, he's supposed to be the young, like, revolutionary. He has these all these ideas. Also one of Godard's best films. I think it's his best film. But it's it's also that it's it's the Godard character who has these aspirations of greatness and of these aspirations of meaning in the world and saying political change and all these things about the culture. But at his heart, he's really just like a big pop culture buff. So, so here's the thing I'm trying to work out is that like, so Wes Anderson, he, he always has characters who are grandiose about, or, or, uh, pretentious about their own like self. Well, not necessarily, not self. The Max Fishers, the Max Fishers. The Max Fisher, but like they're like, they're grandiose about their importance. Um, inflated sense of purpose what's his name again max fisher sharp little guy he's one of the worst students we've got but i think this is somewhat related to this um but then these characters are always undercut in some way 
or they or they go through an experience where they have to reevaluate their relationship to reality to the real world to their real position in it or but the film's never um like it's never a total like uh destruction of that of that view it's like it's sort of like you they have to have a reality check but at the same time they get a little bit of like there's a there's still an embrace of that desire to be grandiose and i wonder if that sums up a lot of the wes anderson films it's the way that rushmore like sort of deflates max fisher only to allow us the sort of theatrical curtain at the very end when the credits go as if you know like the whole thing has been one of his plays and what we were just talking about with the action sequences the way that like like you know there's i think something there is that he's just saying like you know what every action movie even if he had real guy on the front of the car at the end of the day it's just puppets at the end of the day it's just animation yeah like like it but but at the same time this is coming from the director who we've just talked about always is like it's a wes anderson film and he's exerts his little fingers all over the film there's this like sort of like um grandiosity grandiosity it's there with the uh, grand budapest but the the deflation but at the same time the recognition that you have to have a little bit of this to get through like life but you and I I, don't know so what i think of it is is that there's a bit of of wes anderson's kind of grandiose fools of his protagonists there's a bit of himself in all of them and because mm-hmm. wes anderson has he himself has been very successful he's a bit of a whiz kid because he started making films very young remember he made the bottle like he made Bottle Rocket as, like, a super low-budget indie, but he also made the, like, Bottle Rocket short film as just, like, him and his buddies yeah. making yeah. a short film, and that, and like, catapulted like, him. Just turned out his buddies were the Wilson yeah. brothers. But didn't, like, <laughs> Scorsese, like, see it and, like, really like yes, Bottle yes, Rocket? Yes, Mark- so, actually, people forget that Martin Scorsese is actually one of his sort of, like, more, like, mentors yeah. and people. And his use of pop music, yeah. even, but, draw, is, like, similar to Scorsese. But, so, what I'm saying here is that, like, he's a whiz kid who hasn't been destroyed by the system. In actuality, the Hollywood system has given him the freedom to create his dreams on screen. Yes, Max Fisher it, has been given everything so, to do all the So, plays. the characters... He's, re, he's the real life the Max The characters Fisher. learn a lesson, but they never get their comeuppance. He's not Orson Welles, who gets... He has the mm. same vision, but the characters get destroyed. It's not the Citizen and Kane destroyed. It's not the, it's the not comeuppance and Magnificent Ambersons. But yeah. so he, and it's also it's also that Wes Anderson is operating on ultimately the comic tradition in the 1930s sense of cinema, where the movies ultimately resolve in a comic fact, you know, like a traditional the style in the traditional, traditional comedy. Okay. You yeah, elaborate, so like elaborate Lubitsch, on that. But it's like a Lubitsch or a Billy Wilder or the others. So it's not it's just a happy of, ending, but what else? It's it, Well, it's not just a happy ending, but it's the idea that it's gesturing at the other things, but it's also calling back to its own artificiality and its own existence as a story yes. that's meant to distract away from the things. So that's part of the thing. And the worth, happy ending then becomes itself significant because exactly. it's artificial, not because it's, it's real. And yeah. then it's imbued with ennui. And melancholy. Mm. For some reason, I'm thinking of some like it hot in the final line. It's like nobody's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't understand, Osgood. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. Well, what I'm thinking of is like Lubitsch. So it's like to you know to be or not to be or something or or some yeah some Billy Wilder movies where. Yeah, some like it hot or apartment where it's like they have to rebuild the world because the movie has to end and there's almost like a self-consciousness in that like we have to we can't leave you with the pure depression. Grand Budapest Hotel is probably the movie that comes closest to that kind of like mm-hmm. true melancholy ending and the idea that well, but that's because I I've pointed out that 
Grand Budapest Hotel is uh, closer in tone to something like Rules of the Game. Yeah, but the, the key with Grand Budapest Hotel is that even though M. Gustave dies, Zero Mustafa is there to take over yep. the hotel and continue the tradition alive. So the actual dream does not die. There's still some order that can be maintained, even if Zabroka cannot be as a toll maintained in that control there can be this little world that still exists within it that keeps the like decadence and the, the civilized so, alive. Tending the so garden. here's the question the back garden. to the French dispatch is does it, so if the film's doing this um, we've sort of outlined this dynamic in this films, right, where you have a grandiosity um, there's some sort of deflation that has to happen but at the end it still embraces that to some extent. Does this film go through that? And if the grandiosity says this whole idea of doing a magazine from France for the cultured reader in America. And we've talked about how each of the... And Aaron's called really attention to this, how in each scene it's deflating some of those cornerstones of that sort of cultured elite, right? Whether it's the whole premise of modern art and its value, um, sort of like French intellectual slash revolutionary culture mid-century. And then the last one, this idea of, you know, like the value of what is like a food critic um, and things like that. But does the film have then an overarching at the end emphasis on like, but it's still like it's still important? Not really, because the the newspaper dies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. So like, I'm wondering what to make of that then. I think the reason why I'm not more so more enamored of this movie is that because as our conversation here has pointed out, it's very interesting. It's doing lots of things. It's actually a very artistic vision of its specific worlds that it's presenting on screen, and it is. All these stories, I don't think they're, it's a matter of just like, I like the third one more than the first one, therefore no, the movie's yeah, uneven. Right. They're actually yeah. very of a piece because they all work into a larger thing. It's it's more of that I just find most of it kind of a lark, you know? Like, it, it's, it's almost superficial on my part where I'm just, I'm not all that... I can't mourn the loss of great <laughs> civilization of because some hoity-toity magazine ends. There doesn't have the kind of... It seems to almost have like a prerequisite emotional attachment that would be necessary for the ending to ring as some kind of genuine um yeah i think that's note. what i was trying to get at earlier when i said that like it requires you to have this attachment to new yorker style uh you know mag- literary magazines from like say you know mid-century and that if you you don't really mourn that then what's the well it's fun the that's the thing but it doesn't register deeper that's what i'm saying for yeah. me personally but, but how does this fit in then also with like like, um, Anderson has a passion for the objects of the past, especially if they are something that actually has passed and we don't currently have. Yeah. It's, it's his, his whole interest of, like, you know, and we've got Leica now, but, like, like, his interest in stop motion is partly my sense that stop motion isn't really a thing that's commonly done. That's, you know, it's... Or trains, it, it, he, he or had, books. It's because he's a gallerist, he's again. He's collecting objects that should be preserved. So is, this, whole- so is this preserving, essentially, that kind of journalism, that kind of a magazine, this is just a, pres- a preservation of it, I think he has that collector's like, yeah. streak in his filmmaking, right? And you I collect it, the object, yeah. I mean, I, I don't have like a solution to it. Maybe if some listeners have ideas, they can let us know because I know a lot of people are very passionate about Anderson and might have something mm-hmm. that ties the bow on the end. Yeah, and I yeah. think the fact that and I know a lot of people who like fall into the like that are big fans of this particular film. I know I've talked to a few people who who were like, "Oh, I loved it. I think it's one of the best Andersons," and I'm like, "Oh." 
because I, I I haven't heard. Okay, I like I liked it. I didn't dislike it, oh, but wow. like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm curious. But I, I, I liked it, but I didn't. But I didn't. It's not my favorite. No. The, but like mm. I even saw some reviews being like, you know, like this is the most crowd pleasing of Andersons. I was like, I think this movie's only crowd pleasing for people who are already on like the wavelength. Yeah. Whereas like I feel like this might be the most off putting for someone who has no knowledge or interest in him. But that's but that's kind of my comment right off the top when I was like I I've almost approached him similar to like a Woody Allen at this point yes. where even if Wes or Ander, even if Wes Anderson made a movie a year, I don't think it would be possible for me to like dislike one. He just couldn't financially like. <laughs> yeah. it's already a yeah. miracle that man gets to finance these movies. Yeah. They like never make a they never make a profit. He has every star shows up to like be in them. They're like, like they're immaculately the made, is, and then, not lazy. <laughs> but it just moves on. The cast of this thing is ridiculous. They're all they've way. all been they've been ridiculous forever since uh, Royal yeah. Tenenbaums. That's true. Yeah, Royal Tenenbaums had. But the funny thing is, why do actors? Cast, my yeah. question is like partly like why do actors want to be in his films? Because maybe it's a good experience. You, but like you don't often get like actually, um, they're not really like actors' movies. Like you can tell he like he controls the way like you have to deliver this certain line, and like. So, and uh, definitely some actors, yeah. like, just click with it, like, really well. No, Ant- Anton, I think it's just a simple answer that, like, many actors are theater kids and they like playing yeah. dress up and having fun. It'd just probably be a blast to just do it, right? Like, yeah. and then you get a sense that, like, a lot of these guys are friends. You know, like, it's like, yeah. like it's, well, the, the you have the Wilsons, but, like, you know, at this stage Bill you Murray, have, like, yeah. even, like, Edward Norton probably has a blast if he's on there because he's done a few, yeah. like, even though he's notoriously Schwarzman. cranky. Well, always show up because they're, like, yeah, yeah. So... Let me ask, what's next for Wes Anderson, guys? Where does he go from here? Like, I don't know. You'll just get another like, movie. <laughs> will he? But what I mean is, like, is he gonna? Is there ever gonna be? And this may be what I'm gesturing at is that all our circling around and going back to his old, older films and things. As much as there's, you know, so, something different here, there, there's also the same thing. It's 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 another Wes Anderson film. There's certain intensifications of certain stylistic tendencies, but. Do you think he'll ever try to do something no. significantly different? No, I think I think Aaron's right that he he will be, um, he'll be a Woody Allen in the sense of like, I think he might make movies for the like his whole life, but he's just like he'll be a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, and those who like it will like it. And he'll get every actor in Hollywood to line up. Yeah, yeah, but like I like you know I think there's other directors who do similar things, but you're wondering how they'll twist that, and I I don't see that in. Not in, every like, not every auteurist evolves all the time. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm not not to sidetrack this into a adoration of somebody like David Cronenberg, but he's a perfect example of a director with extremely intense auteurist interests who actually evolves his filmmaking yeah. depending. Yeah, he on actually has phases as a retrospective discusses, right? Like, there's actually yeah. the different periods and they change. And, totally. Well, but it's not even that. Is that like his ideas are so potent that they are always gesturing beyond just his own work and so somebody like wes anderson i think i'm content for wes anderson to never change it just means that each subsequent film that comes out i might simply it like <laughs> and i might yeah. not but it, whole head but it might also be around the margins what makes it better right like grand budapest like again like that to me has grown right it's probably my third favorite of his and it's the kind of film that it, it it's not Right, he didn't set out to make like a self-consciously serious film about about the rise of fascism in Europe, but but it, because it's invested in that, it does like draw on and bring in some other tendencies and other things into it, even though it's very much stylistically et cetera a yeah. Wes Anderson mm-hmm. film. So I think that's the 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 way he'll be able to do 
something new going forward, but I think he'll still always be working within his frameworks, whether it's stop motion or the live action ones. Berenson's article, The Concrete Masterpiece. Three dangling participles, two split infinitives, and nine spelling errors in the first sentence alone. Some of those are intentional. <laughs> the Kremens story, revisions to a manifesto. We asked for 2,500 words, and she came in at 14,000, plus footnotes, endnotes, a glossary, and two epilogues. It's one of her best. <laughs> Sazerac. Impossible to fact check. He changes all the names and only writes about hobos, pimps, and junkies. These are his people. How about Roebuck Wright? His door's locked, but I could hear the keys clacking. Don't rush him. The question is, who gets killed? There's one piece too many, even if we print another double issue, which we can't afford under any circumstances. A message from the foreman. One hour to press. You're fired. Really? Don't cry in my office. Well, we've been enjoying the return to theaters over the last few months. The majority of people enjoying the cinematic arts in the world today consume their stories and images via streaming platforms like Netflix, HBO Max, or Crave in Canada. While cinephiles are blessed with curated streaming platforms like Mubi or the Criterion Channel, most people spend their time watching serialized stories, or what we used to call television. I'm joking to some degree, but it's true that TV seems to offer the largest audience these days. If you're in a space where you actually interact casually with other people in life, it's likely you'll hear people talking about the shows they're enjoying. And the most recent phenomenon was Netflix's Korean dystopian drama, Squid Game, the latest in a long line of most dangerous game stories, including Battle Royale and Hunger Games, which explore the lengths people will go to win and survive in a brutal competition. As fans of Korean cinema and dystopian fiction more generally, each of us has watched Squid Game and squirmed at the brutal choices and drama it generates at each stage of the game. So, what did you guys think of Squid Game? Did it live up to the hype? Um, you know, when did you engage with it, and what did you think? I actually thought it was one of those, so everyone was talking about it, I watched it, and I think it's better and also different than the hype suggests. Um, people latch on to the whole idea of, like, this this game, and if you're doing the children's game, and, like, if you lose in the game, you die, and there's so much more going on in this film. Yeah. Than just, or sorry, this uh, TV show. I think it's interesting that you said film, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> than that. But, you know, like, so I, I think it's better than the hype. I would recommend it. I'm happy that it's a success. It can continue the the, the Korean, you know, sort of cinematic uh, renaissance. Korean and pop cultural domination pop culture of our wave culture. that's moving. Yeah, just keep it going. Between Oscars and television and music with yeah. K-pop, it is, it's Korea's world, culturally. So on the last episode, I think it was the last episode might have been but Anto, i think you you made some it's i'm trying to think which conversation but at some point recently anton you made a comment about how like modern tv shows are only satisfying in like intermittent moments where the actual structure yep. is often falls apart or the actual like you have 10 episodes of a prestige show and there's some stunning cinematography some great performances and there's some moments that are awesome and overall you're satisfied but they but don't tell a great story but it doesn't tell a great story and it doesn't hold you moment to moment and I actually think Squid Game is a perfect example of a show that, like, 
is so conventionally satisfying because in i i think that if it wasn't korean and if it wasn't so amorphously tentacled out into all these various symbol symbolic gestures into what cultural or political things they can do people would be a little more aware of how it's just a really really good concept with classic storytelling attributes like so it's got the high concept that sucks you in it's life or death play children's games in this high this like ridiculous you know hungry game scenario and it's got characters that all fit into these conventions you got you know you got the smart guy you got the police officer you got the gangster you got the old guy you got the foreigner <laughs> they all are literally types you can just desc- you don't have to know the names of the characters you can just describe them as like the old guy the north korean the yeah, gangster yeah. <laughs> it puts them into a situation in which the tension escalates incredibly to the point of like you know most of these characters are going to die therefore you were invested in how they're going to die but because it spends so much time telling you why they're there what this character wants in life and how like it spends time on building the relationships in these various scenarios oh it's this novel thing that like if you just introduce a character make them sympathetic and put them in a scenario of high tension people are very interested and invested in it and want to know what to happen and then and you it get transcends a catharsis. cultural barriers. Yes, yeah. and then you like, get a catharsis at the end. Yeah. It's like it's so basic, and it's it's frankly it's very similar to my thoughts like five years ago, six years ago when when like Justified it wrapped up its thing, and I'm just like, I think we don't give enough credit to shows that just ace a classic storytelling structure like really well. I agree with what everything you just said, but I also think Squid Game does an extra level too, in the sense of like I'm not denying that it. It has all these conventional TV components that it tells fairly normal or like, you know, classic TV character arcs and does it really well. And the, the way you, so everything you described, I agree with. But I also think that there's extra things going on that enhance it and make it more significant. And my one, one thing I just thought is like the whole second episode, for instance, mm-hmm. does something different to the story that I could see any number of other TV shows with this exact premise not doing. Yeah. The to simple me, the fact second that, episode it sends, is when I got hooked, that it sends everyone back out of the game and then puts them into like this very like, you know, um, socioeconomic view of like where they are in their world and why they might want to choose to go back into this game. I just like there, it makes some choices like that throughout and then we can talk about how like i is it the second last or the third last episode when we are introduced to the um like the actual watchers of the game the vips the vips episode to me that to me that, that is again one is it one of those moments that like show. pushes it in a in, in like an extra direction and again we're like i could see this show have been made where you don't have those extra things and it would just be like still like a really good show yeah but it'd be more like the hunger games yeah yeah yeah, it'd be, it'd be a good concept, well performed, but it wouldn't have those strange ambiguities that can jump into. And other it avenues. also has one of those Korean, like old boy kind of like, mm-hmm. like it's not a full on twist, but you get some of that at the end yeah. and like his choice. Well, you mean with yeah. the revelation of the front? Well, the, the revelation stuff, yeah. that yeah, the old guy is actually the guy like who started it, and then the fact that he also is wants to the main guy is going to go back into it. Yeah, I know. I know. I like the show quite a bit. I think I agree with everything you said. I thought actually the one thing, the VIPs are one of the weaker spots of the show. I think that the one is the actors that they cast uh, aren't up to 
task, which is probably something that is probably true in a lot of uh, shows, which is that, you know, we... It's just I know that those are obviously like the you know English actors who were available in the Korean production. They're just not at the level of the other actors. I'm and sure shows, Koreans think that. But about Koreans us probably when think that Koreans same thing. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I was just gonna say. It's <laughs> yeah. like it's it's always like we always get a little taste of what it might be like to to not be the dominant uh, audience as, as Anglo's. You know, like I think that that's actually sometimes nice and refreshing to remind ourselves that you know other you know ways of viewing at the same time um i agree that it like really it plays there's, there's individual episodes that are that really stand out i think the second episode i agree on something really great i think you know people have talked about the the marbles episode ganbu 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 as like yep. you know episode. being like yours is mine, is, mine your, is your question yours. is whether or not is that episode manipulative and like oh, just yeah. horrible or is it, it is. like actually it brilliant is. i actually think it's brilliant too though i actually but it's think manipulative that that is, and brilliant yeah. but, but then the ending makes it yes deepens yes. it so much exactly like so i actually think that but that's what like, tv is that's yeah. like why i think it's a great episode because like tv is manipulative yeah it does like deploy these things to make you like you know like a sucker who gets drawn in and mm-hmm. be like oh feel yeah. feel for it and then at the end, so like one one thing I love about Squid Game is that I think Squid Game is such a commentary on viewing TV. Yeah. It's an indictment of TV, like not just like TV shows, but like on multiple levels, like the game show. Sports. Um, yeah. Sports. I think it's an indictment of the TV drama that yep. like you get invested in the character and the art. To watch them wiped out, wiped out. Yeah. I'm only invested in you so that I get more excited for the next game becomes tenser so I can get more satisfaction from your yeah. eventual death. Yeah, like whether it's like the Lost or the Game of Thrones that's sort of like who's going to who's going to yeah. make it through? Like we we approach the TV drama sometimes. But there's a self-consciousness sense. here about it that yeah. yeah is there's you know and I and I think but it's you know, layered two ways. It's yep. layered with what I find brilliant about the show is that it, so you get this you get this basic concept and then it's layered both on the sort of like like Parasite, like a socioeconomic depth and yeah. like, right, like where you can really read the film in all sorts of sort of political or socioeconomic ways. And then there's a meta level yeah. where it's engaging with the idea of like TV shows as art in all the different ways of that. Yeah. So like, that's why. I and really I even like think it. that it goes even one further and pushes things into the level of like questions of like ethics and morality and spirituality. And stuff yeah. Yeah. Metaphysical moments. level for sure. And that Aaron always said like early on, he was like, oh, this is like the prisoner. And yes. I actually, that's I was a great say, reference point. Even, even the bizarreness of like the, uh, the like yeah. the hallways and like it's, it's the like artificiality the, of it yeah. all. The fact that yeah. they're so consciously presented into a world, they know that it's fake and it's like you're going to play the game because you have no choice. <laughs> like, not, not, not no choice in terms of that, but, like, you have no choice but to accept this re- this game as we present it to you once you've signed up. Yeah. Like, you don't get to determine any of the rules. You don't get to decide whether you wear a different jumpsuit or eat a different piece of food or whatnot. Like, it's that's just how it works. <laughs> and, and, like, The Prisoner, like, once... Like, again, like, The Prisoner was never, like... I don't think it was ever, like, a widely popular show when it came out. I, I could be wrong. But like it has one. If you've ever seen it, there's like an iconicity to certain images in it that like will stay with you forever. Where it's that weird spherical blob like running you down, or just like the the way the weird way that the island looks. It's just the umbrellas and stuff. That weird village. It's actually filmed that weird village in like Wales or whatever, right? Yeah. But then like you know like Squid Game does something similar where you're like 
they've built something where like people are like you know already. like Halloween everyone was already, being yeah. Squid yeah. Game but like it'll be like you know 10 years from now we'll have the guy with the triangle like the weird mask and like the triangle people are like ah Squid but, Game but, and people will know it but and see, that's brilliant so I want to give some credit like the creator um, Wang Dong Yuk like he wrote it he directed all the episodes he worked on it for like he wanted to do it as a movie first yeah like mm. 10 years ago yeah and then they didn't, and then only because Netflix was specifically like, we want to push to have, we want to have big foreign drama. Like, we want the next huge hit to be a foreign thing. And really savvy on their part to be like, we're just going to invest in interesting ideas and see what hits. This but is a good example of the, the streaming getting it credit for what it, what it did. Because you would not get this even on no. an HBO. No. You would not have done this. But, so, I, have to, I think he, he is being much more, like, savvy in watching the landscape of like the mid, the late 2000s and then the, like the 2010s with the dystopian fiction like Hunger Games and stuff and the resurgence of Battle Royale being popular and also you got that with like Occupy Wall Street and then you got like the Trump era and you know this idea of like class consciousness rising up but it gets borne out within the fictions that we consume and so he is pulling lots of these threads in there in like a really um, knowing way but I don't I think one of the things that might frustrate some of the more let's just say, like, politically, mm-hmm. ideologically, ideologically ideologues. charged. Let's just call them yes, ideologues. the ideologues, is that the, the show does not, like, it, it, people are like, oh, it's like a giant metaphor for capitalism. It's like, well... well yes and no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, it has elements of that in it. It, ha- it, it, it definitely, like, In fact, I think it's, it's critique of capitalism is more damning than most uh, obvious ideological... But, but uh, it's similar ones. to Parasite, where it's yeah, like it exactly. doesn't ignore Great. the ethics or the personal morality exactly. in there, and it pits. It's like it's actually hits really hard because it never allows anything to be boiled down to like a simple answer or a simple way of reading these in these like highly charged encounters that they're in. Yeah, and none of the characters are actually like, even though I, I describe them, you know, like Gyun is just the loser, like the main guy, played by uh, Lee Jung Jae, and then you get. Song Wu, who's like the smart guy, right? And it's it's actually really smart, clever how throughout the show you're like, oh, who's the villain? Who's the villain? It's like, no, he's the villain. It's just within our world, villains are sympathetic too. They're just <laughs> a little more ruthless. Like you know, it's the but it's a classic conventional thing. It's like a villain is more effective if you they think they're the good guy. <laughs> I thought what was so an example of how I think this this uh, show is it's not easy to give a very like flat reading of it. So think of the way the film uses the idea of like equity within like people talk about the, like there's a critique of capitalism and like um, like ruthless competition. But think about the way it uses equity within that competitive landscape as a controlling mechanism. And the front like, man constantly talks about it. He's like, yeah. oh, this is where true equality, true equity exists. Yeah. Exactly. And I just everyone's like, reduced to a boil down to. An yeah. Essence. Yeah. But, like, so, like, that just to me is an example of, like, just a f- very, like, flat, simplistic reading of, like, what's going on in this doesn't really capture it. Like, there's there's a few different directions, and there's a little bit more going on there, I think, right? Like, because, like, if you're going to do that, then you're going to have to think about, like, how does our capitalist system use things like equity? Like, so there's, like, it, it's <laughs> it, not allowing exactly. you to just take, like, yeah. an easy... There's like, no easy out. You can't just be yeah. like pat yourself on the back after watching this because. And then she's the North Korean, like you know, yeah. and she's come from a you know a uh, communist life, totalitarian yeah. brutal system, and like so like it's and then the guy who's come from South Asia alley yeah. like yeah, up there Pakistan, yeah. immigrant to like work you know like work his way into this culture, but like 
how he can both succeed in this, but like he's also then taken advantage of the like. But again, like these aren't what I yeah, found. It, what I liked about the show is that like it's tapping into a lot of these, and like like Parasite, it's tapping into a lot of um, hot button, important issues that people want to talk about, but it's not in that like ideological plain sort of like this is the idea you must yeah, take exactly. this it's one because it's idea. ultimately a work of art and not yes. <laughs> not just not a message a pumping propaganda <laughs> yeah. yeah it's one of those things when when it came out and i was like what is this squid game that everybody's watching why is this so popular and you watch the first episode and you're like okay i get this this like exactly. interesting concept and then you watch the second episode and you're like this isn't just like addictive it's actually very good and then you keep watching and you're like mm-hmm. okay this is you know it happens sometimes where a show that's enormously popular. Like, this is the most watched Netflix show ever. Yep. That's insane. <laughs> that is insane. <laughs> think about that. It has a global appeal, though. But you're like, oh, this is the best Netflix show I've watched in a few years. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Please check out our written content at threebrothersfilm.com, and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Three Brothers Film. Next month, December, will be our one-year anniversary of the podcast, and we thank you for listening and hope to catch you on the next episode of Three Brothers Filmcast. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>